0: The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's
1: Mark. The dog days of a lost summer. We have a little China strategy, a bit of pushback against an outrageous bit of VJ Day cultural vandalism... All to come on today's show. This weekend marks a quarter millennium to the day, August twenty-second, seventeen seventy, of Lieutenant James Cook landing on Possession Island, off the northern. Co- I not Is that the Aborigine name? Uh, Possession Island off the northern coast of Queensland, and claiming the entire eastern coast of Australia for the British Crown, as uh, Lieutenant Cook wrote in his journal for that day. I now once more hoisted English colours and in the name of his majesty, King George III took possession of the whole eastern coast by the name New South Wales, together with all the bays, harbours, rivers and islands situate upon the said coast. I expect there will be deliriously joyful celebrations down under all weekend long. We shall report on the jubilations uh, Next week, uh, extensive reports on the jubilations. I'm still getting requests to comment on the Democrat convention in the United States. I refer you to... Miss Rose McGowan, who is not quite as numbingly on message as her fellow thespians Bette Midler, Mia Farrow, Cher and Rob Reiner, as reported earlier in the week. Miss McGowan tweets What have the Democrats done to solve anything? Help the poor? No. Help black and brown people? No. Stop police brutality? No. Help single mothers? No. Help children? No. You have achieved nothing. Nothing. Why did people vote Trump? Because of you mother bleepers indeed meanwhile the press conferences of the president of the united states are becoming increasingly surreal sample question from the most elite products of american journalism school uh in this case, asking him about a current conspiracy theory.
0: At the, at the crux of the theory it is this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like something you are behind? Or... Well, I haven't I haven't heard that, but uh, is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know,
2: if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, um. Willing to do it. I'm willing to put myself out
1: there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not sure what the correct answer to that uh, question is, but uh, get set for a lot more conspiracies in America's future. We have conspiracy theories on the right for obvious reasons. Trump gets elected with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, but nothing changes. So there must be a conspiracy-type reason for that. We have conspiracy theories on the left... Uh, because there are plenty of Democrats, not the leadership, not the FBI, DOJ crowd, but plenty of ordinary Dems who truly believe Trump is a Russian agent. So we have conspiracy theories on the left for a somewhat subtler reason. The left controls everything, the colleges, the kindergartens, the courts, the churches, the movies, the news. Uh, So how is it possible for Trump still to win. Given that the most likely outcome of November 3rd is that Trump will win but nothing will change, we will all be living in conspiracy land for the next four years. Let me just restate two basic principles I've been saying for decades now, demography and culture, both Trump politics. Uh, Politicians are merely the creatures of the demographic and cultural trends, which is why on Tuesday night, every other November, the American right finds itself in the same position as King Canute did when he attempted to demonstrate to his courtiers the limits of his powers against certain phenomena so on Tuesday every other November the American right stands on the shore and watches the demographic and cultural tides rolling in and breathes a sigh of relief that it's just uh, washed in and tickled its wingtips rather than sweeping it out to sea and consigning it to Davy Jones locker. But you know where this is headed. After 9-11, when the West first became aware that Islam saw paradise as a brothel where every martyr got his 72 virgins, there was a tedious joke during the rounds on the internet that this was a typing error, and really, when Muhammad Atta got to heaven, he'd be faced with 72 Virginians, i.e. tough hombre from the American founding. Well, Virginia's a blue state now, so that joke... Doesn't work so well, does it? Now we have to add in cultural dominance wielded by China. The old school French critique of globalization uh, back in the 90s was that it was a euphemism for Americanization, which uh, by their definition was entirely ghastly. Well, the Americans still make all the rubbish, but it's rubbish that it increasingly conforms to the demands of Hollywood's Chinese masters, like Marvel Comics getting rid of the Tibetan character from the Doctor Strange movie to avoid offending Chairman Xi. So we live in a time of demographic transformation and suffocating dominance by a pop culture enthralled to freedom's principal adversary. Um, Which brings us to the uh, flapdoodle of the day. We Build The Wall, which is an organisation and uh, one whose founders have just been charged with scamming their donors, a a $25 million racket. You may have seen on the news pictures of former Trump uh, Trump campaign manager Steve Bannon appearing uh, in court in handcuffs. Um, There are three aspects of this Uh, that are of interest to me. First, as you know, I regard the entire federal justice system as wholly corrupt and favour burning it to the ground. Uh, The Feds win 97% of their cases without ever going to trial, 99% if they do go to trial. So regardless of whether he's innocent or guilty, them's the odds Bannon is up against, uh, unless he wants to bank on a Trump pardon, Uh, And he made the mistake of uh, mocking Trump's kids. So Trump isn't personally uh, too keen about him uh, on uh, Bannon at the moment. So the point about sticking a guy who is not a career criminal, is not violent, poses no danger to anyone in handcuffs for that court appearance, uh, which would be rightly reviled if, say, Putin did it to a political opponent, it's to let Bannon know you're screwed. Uh, And your life is over unless you cut a deal. Nothing personal. That's how they deal with everyone. That's how they'll deal with you when they come for you. Uh, So it's how they deal with Steve Bannon, Glenn Maxwell, my old boss, Conrad Black, Uh, Most important of all with these guys, there's no equality before the law. So there are still credulous rubes out there who think that the Durham report is finally going to name Comey, Clapper, Brennan and all those other A-list chislers will be heading to the big house. Yeah, yeah, sure. If you believe that, I've got some swampland where I'm headquartering uh, my new 501c3. We build the wall with eagles and minim and all the way along the Rio Grande on top of it, Inc. Uh, To sell you Uh, The Durham report Was originally supposed to be released Last summer In the course of over a year's Delay in that report Because that one they've really Got to make sure they've got all their I's Dotted and T's crossed Uh, So in the course of over a year's delay, the DOJ has managed to launch and complete an investigation into, oh, who who is it this time? Oh, what a surprise. Yet another Trump campaign honcho. Just in time to have the post office SWAT team, seriously, the post office SWAT team arrest him on a Chinaman's yacht and drag him into court in handcuffs days before the GOP convention. Uh Uh-huh. But don't worry, don't worry, that Durham report's really going to nail Comey and McCabe and the rest of the gang. Just you wait for the Durham report. So whether or not Bannon's guilty... Unlike Jim Comey, he's looking right now at at least a decade in jail, maybe dying there because he's 66 and they'll put him in the COVID wing unless he cops a plea and starts singing about Trump. So the net result of this is going to be yet another Trump associate convicted Uh, by the Trump Justice Department and still zip on the other side of the ledger. Oh, but don't worry, that's only until the Durham report. The the, the Durham report, it's coming out any day now, waiting for Durham. Uh, I said I had three aspects of what's happened to We Build the Wall that are of interest to me. Uh, We're going to get to the other two in our next show. Tales for Our Time, Songs of the Week, and of course, The Mark Stein Show.
2: Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalogue of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comments section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com.
1: Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. I suppose we should be relieved that on the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, our leaders did not actually apologise for winning the war against the Japanese Empire. But there were, nevertheless, some shameful moments in the commemoration. Three quarters of a century ago, British Commonwealth troops marched through Asia bellowing Kipling's Road to Mandalay, And in their honour, it was supposed to be sung at the climax of the anniversary gala by the great bass baritone Willard White. Sir Willard is one of the Queen's Jamaican subjects. He has a beautiful voice and an utterly empty head. So he put his foot down and said he wouldn't sing Road to Mandalay because it represented, quote, cultural superiority. One might note that you need a certain amount of cultural superiority to win a war, which is one reason why the unending but unwon wars of this century have gone so badly. Uh, But we needn't reach that, as the judges say, in the case of Willard White, who said he, quote, felt uneasy singing lines about one God being superior to another, uh, which is actually the essence of religion if you think about it. Uh, Much-needed discussions are taking place challenging assumptions of cultural superiority, continued Sir Willard, and the inequalities caused by them. As a proud human being, I couldn't sing such sentiments with a clear conscience. And after raising this with the BBC production team, it was mutually agreed that another work should be selected. Yeah, it was all very mutual, I'm sure. The line that made him uneasy about one god being superior to another was this: "And I see that first a smoking of a whackin' white cheroot, and a wasting Christian kisses on an Ethan Idol's foot," by which he means the Burmese girl he's taken with is kissing a statue of Buddha, the Ethan Idol which Buddha is to a Christian, as Christ would be vice versa. Now, it should hardly be necessary to say this to Sir Willard, who is by profession an actor... He's a singing actor in opera, where the acting can get a bit iffy, uh, but nevertheless, that is what he does. He plays characters in dramatic narratives for a living. And Kipling's poem is written from the point of view of an English Tommy recalling his days in Burma. That's the character. That's the point of view on the situation. And just to make Willard White even more of a bona fide moron of the week, the poem is objectively pro-Burma. The soldier is now back in England and he's walking out with housemaids and it's not the same. And he misses Burma because if you've heard the Easter calling, you won't never eat naught else. And with that line, Kipling captures something that generations of Englishmen felt and feel. The Caribbean and Africa and the Pacific were colonies, but India and Ceylon and Singapore were love affairs, and Burma most of all. Kipling was 24 when he wrote this poem, and as smitten as any old soldier. Here's what he wrote on another occasion. When I die, I will be a Burman, with twenty yards of real king silk that has been made in Mandalay about my body, and a succession of cigarettes between my lips, and I will always walk about with a pretty almond-coloured girl who shall laugh and jest too as a young maiden ought. She shall not pull a sari over her head when a man looks at her and glares suggestively from behind it, nor shall she tramp behind me when I walk, for these are the customs of India. She shall look all the world between the eyes in honesty and good fellowship, and I will teach her not to defile her, pretty mouth with chopped tobacco in a cabbage leaf, but to inhale good cigarettes of Egypt's best brand. Unquote. So she's going to be a little English and smoking store-bought fags, and he's going to be very Burman, with 20 yards of silk wrapped around him. That doesn't sound like cultural superiority to me, but um, a little give and take. And uh, more give from his side than from hers. Young Rudyard wasn't the only one with an eye for those pretty almond-coloured girls until well into the 70s, uh, 80s, framed prints of the Burmese girl were as ubiquitous in the living rooms of English suburban cul-de-sacs as posters of the tennis player scratching her bum were on the walls of the sad bedsits of horny young men. Willard White's act of cultural vandalism is not a small thing... Were it to hold, the damage would outweigh all the contributions of Sir Willard on stages across the world. So in the face of such philistine idiocy, it is necessary to take a stand on the road to Mandalay and make the old mine Pagoda the hill to die on. First published in the Scots Observer of June the 21st 1890 by Rudyard Kipling, Mandalay. By the old mill mine pagoda looking lazy at the sea. There's a Burma girl a-setting, and I know she thinks of me. For the wind is in the palm trees and the temple bells they say. Come you back, you British soldier. Come you back to Mandalay. Come you back to Mandalay where the old flotilla lay. Can't you hear their paddles chunking from Rangoon to Mandalay? On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play. And the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China, across the bay. Her petticoat was yellow, and her little cap was green. And her name was Supi Yorlat, just the same as Thebor's queen. And I seen her first a-smoking of a whacking white cheroot, And a wasting Christian kisses on an Ethan idol's foot. bloomin' idol made of mud what they call the great gourd bud. Plucky lot she cared for idols when I kissed her where she stood. On the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China, across the bay. When the mist was on the rice fields and the sun was dropping slow, she'd get her little banjo and she'd sing kulalo Lo With her arm upon my shoulder and her cheek again my cheek, we used to watch the steamers and the hathies pile and teak. Elephants are pile in teak in the sludgy, squudgy creek. Where the silence hung that heavy, you was half afraid to speak. On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play. And the dawn comes up like thunder out of China, cross the bay. But that's all shoved behind me long ago and far away, and there ain't no buses running from the bank to Mandalay. And I'm learning here in London what the ten-year soldier tells. If you've heard the Easter calling, you won't never eat nought else. No, you won't eat nothing else but them spicy garlic smelts, and the sunshine and the palm trees and the tinkly temple bells on the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. I am sick of wasting leather on these gritty paving stones and the blasted English drizzle wakes the fever in my bones, though I walks with fifty housemaids out a Chelsea to the Strand and they talks a lot a-loving, but what do they understand?' beefy-face and grubby and, law, what do they understand of a neater, sweeter maiden in a cleaner, greener land on the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play. And the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. Ship me somewhere's of sewers where the best is like the worst. Where there aren't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst. For the temple bells are calling and it's there that I would be. By the old mine pagoda looking lazy at the sea. On the road to Mandalay where the old flotilla lay with our sick beneath the awnings, when we went to Mandalay. Oh, the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China across the bay. A poem from Me To You by Rudyard Kipling, Mandalay, a town liberated from an appalling occupation by the Japanese and restored to British rule by the 14th Army under the command of General Slim, and also a song they sang as they marched in 75 years ago. A great shame that Willard White likes the imaginative capacity to grasp that at an event supposed to honour those men. Three years later, Barmer quit the empire, I mean, for real. Not like India, Pakistan, Ceylon or Sir Willard's Jamaica graduating to dominion status within the Commonwealth, brimming with post-war resentments against their imperial masters. Burma just checked out. One minute it was a crown colony under the King Emperor with Sir Herbert Rance as governor. Then the Union flag came down and it was a sovereign republic with Sao Shui Thaik as president. The... Hereditary Saofa of Yonghui, Shui Thaik, died in prison shortly after the 1962 coup, and his Saofa sat, uh, was abolished, and Burma lost to the world. It was not, in objective terms, terribly important to the empire, but it loomed larger than almost anywhere else in the imperial imagination. We're not yet done with Mandalay on today's show. We will be back on the road shortly. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Oh, before we get to the substantive question, Brian from Minneapolis writes, any plans for another Clubland Q&A, Mark? It's been a while since we've had one. No rush if you're not into it these days. Well, Brian, I am into it, uh, but it's been a while. In fact, I, I miss it. Uh, But it's been a while because of COVID and uh, certain risks associated with the manner in which we usually do it, Uh, and it's the liveness uh, of it that I like. So we did one that wasn't live a couple of months back, but we tried to do it as live. It was uh, an hour uh, delayed, as it were. Uh, But I didn't care for the way it came out. I thought it was fatally enervated, personally. Uh, Your mileage may vary, but uh, we're going to try and do one next month. Might be before Labor Day or might be just after. Uh, But either way, don't wear white. Robert Fox, a Stein Clubber from Iowa, writes, According to an article on CNBC's website, Bank of America Research has found that the cost for European and United States companies to relocate their Chinese supply chains could be one trillion dollars over five years or presumably 200 million per year for five years. I think you mean 200 billion there, uh, Robert. So why doesn't Uncle Sam simply pick up the tab for it? What's another trillion? Wouldn't that be a win-win-win? We eliminate our economic dependence on a hostile regime for not only ourselves, but our so-called European allies. We presumably would bring some of those jobs home, and Europe would have to pretend to like us for at least five years. I... <laughs> uh, ironically, <laughs> um, ironically, we would have to borrow the trillion from the Chicoms themselves. I wonder if they would lend it to us. Yeah. I have the same reaction as you, Robert. By the way, just on that first business about borrowing it from the Chinese, at some point, uh, uh, the dollar is going to cease to be the global reserve currency, because uh, as I've been saying for a decade, there will at some point come a sewers moment, as there was for Britain from America. So there will be for America from China when it decides to yank the rug out from under the US dollar. And at that point, there is no bottom to the plunge. Um, but just to get back to the substantive issue, yeah, what's another trillion? I have the same reaction as you. And as you point out, it isn't actually a trillion, it's 200 billion per annum, which in a US federal budget is what is known as chump change. By comparison, the so-called CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act that Congress passed in March was 2.2 trillion, dollars, not over five years, but boom, right now, just like that. And as we know, a lot of that was just the boondoggle of the day act, whereby millions and millions of Americans are still waiting for their lousy twelve hundred bucks. But the grifters of Shake Shack and Penn State and the Kennedy Center and Planned Parenthood all managed to get theirs uh, before any uh, needy American citizens did. So my reaction to the report by Bank of America, head of global research, Candace Browning, whom I've never heard of, but I assume is one of those people you run into at the Apre Ski Lounge at Davos. My reaction was, wow, what a bargain. Key quote, key quote. The argument against reshoring has always been made on the grounds of lost efficiency and ruinous costs. Our analysis, however, suggests that a one trillion US dollar CAPEX cycle spread over a five-year period would support the shift of all foreign manufacturing in China that is not intended for consumption in China. This would be significant but not prohibitive, unquote. You don't say, just to repeat those key words, the shift of all foreign manufacturing in China The shift of all. That's everything. That's everybody. That's America, the European Union, Britain, Canada, Australia, Japan, the whole world. Shifting all manufacturing that is not intended for Chinese domestic consumption out of China uh, would cost a trillion dollars over five years. So let's do it. The alternative is $2.2 trillion stimulus bills every other month till the end of time. China snaffled manufacturing and the knowledge economy and left us with waitressing and show business. So over 40% of Americans now work in low-paid service jobs about to be rendered obsolete by technology. For example, I mentioned in After America visiting a Virgin megastore. Remember them? Uh, This was in Bordeaux. Uh, And I remarked on its branding in France, la culture du plaisir, the culture of pleasure. That's the West at twilight. That's what China had left us with. Dining, shopping, theme parks, crap politically correct American sports. And then China decided to kill off all that too. So look at the costs of Corona relief, the abandoned downtowns, the retail ice age, the shuttered schools. Uh, whose vast bloated staffs are still getting paid even though they refuse uh, to be in a class with any pupils, and set against that $200 billion a year to bring home every American, German, French, British, on and on and on and on, every single overseas company from China for a trillion bucks over five years? Robert is right. The correct reaction isn't, oh my, 200 billion sounds pretty expensive. By comparison with almost any other action being taken by Western governments right now, this is the deal of the year. If you're going to have a G7 Zoom meeting, this ought to be the number one item on the agenda. Let's get it done.
0: And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week.
1: Rudyard Kipling wrote Mandalay to be sung to an old waltz tune he knew. But the journeyman songwriters of the late 19th century had other ideas. They were just shy of two dozen musical settings of the poem. But it was a composer called Ollie Speaks who made his tune stick and turned Mandalay from a poem into a hit song. Here singing it impromptu, on the Mark Stein Show a couple of years back is that great actor from Goodfellas and Law and Order and much else, Paul Sorvino. I should ask you you this, Dee, because Paul has slightly old fashioned tastes in song. He likes a lot of Neapolitan song. He likes uh, Road to Mandalay, which was the great mainstay How did you know that? of, uh, well, I love Road to Mandalay. Great song. I love Kipling. We've got some Kipling somewhere in the studio. <laughs> There's yeah. some Kipling. But uh, mainstay of uh, British military concert yes. parties across the Far East uh, for decades after decades. And uh, do you find it, did it take you a while to get in tune with him musically? <laughs> I'm not sure she is or ever has. Well, we have an agreement. It's right. funny that you yeah, asked that. Our agreement is the first part of the day until happy hour, Paul can listen to anything he wants. But when it comes about five o'clock or so, I'm like, you're cut off. It's done. Right. It's over. No more opera. I like it, but Paul really loves it. Okay. So at that point in time,
0: you know, you've got Whitney Houston and Prince and, you know, that's coming on. Wow. So I more love like Whitney Houston dance music. Really?
1: Did she ever do Road to Mandalay? That would have been <laughs> a hell of I a deal. mind looking eastward to the sea. Yeah.
2: There's a Burma gala set in, and I know she thinks of me. Or the wind is in the palm trees, and the temple bells, they say, come you back, you British soldier. Come you back to Mandalay, come you back to Mandalay. On the road to Mandalay, where the old flotilla lay, can't you hear their paddles chunking from Rangoon to Mandalay? On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder. How to join
1: across the bay. Wow, Yay. bravo. <laughs> uh, and I it, love that. <laughs> and if he's singing that first, that is the dawn coming up like thunder if that's... Yes. Uh, sings you, uh, every day, and such a treat. Paul Salvino, he loves that song. Words by Rudyard Kipling, music by Oli Speaks. Speaks was not a son of empire, but an all-American boy. Born in Canal, Winchester, Ohio, in 1874, and a popular baritone in local churches, when he turned to composition, he favoured religious themes. The Lord is my light. Gently, Lord, oh, gently lead us. If you became a nun, dear. But in 1907, he swapped the Lord for Kipling's law and set those mine musings to music. It sold a million copies of sheet music And for the rest of all he speaks, life never stopped selling. He would write a couple of other semi-popular tunes, but nothing like Mandalay. In America, it was a popular song about an exotic love. In his majesty's dominions beyond the seas, it was something more, the best song about the best place. Speaks' setting was taken up by singers throughout the empire, but none was more associated with the song than the great Australian bass baritone Peter Dawson. Ship be somewhere's
2: eased to Swiss, Where the best is like the worst Where there ain't no ten commandments And a man can The temple bells are calling, And it's there that I would be By the old mine pagoda Looking lazy at the sea Looking lazy at the Come, you, back to Mandalay, where the old slow tailor lay, can't you hear their paddles chunking from Rangong to Mandalay? Oh, the flying fishes lay And the dawn comes up like thunder Out of China to the bay
1: Peter Dawson sang On the Road to Mandalay for some four decades. He liked the word so much... He recorded them not only to Ollie Speaks's tune, but also to Walter Hedgecock's. And in 1945, he made what he called a mandalay potpourri, a six-minute mélange of Kipling's verses, in settings by various of its composers, uh, including, obviously, Ollie Speaks. Come
2: you back. Charles
1: song, will be on the road to Mandalay.
2: On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder out
1: China rolls the bay. Walter Hedgecock on the road to Mandalay. We used to watch the steamer and the hottest island
2: teak. Any bits of island teak in the sludgy, squudgy creek where the silence hung at heavy, you of the greatest steak on the road. To
1: On the road to Mandalay.
2: On the road to Mandalay, where the is. Fish-
1: When Burma fell to its insane backward dictatorship and was lost to the world, the great song of imperial romance might have been likewise lost. But on October the 1st, 1957, Frank Sinatra walked into the Capitol Studios for the first of three sessions spread over eight days in which he would record his first album with Billy May, Come Fly With Me. You'll know the cover art, Sinatra, Hat on Head taking the hand of an unseen lady and beckoning her toward the steps of the jet behind. Uh, Frank disliked it and told his producer, Voile Gilmore, that it looked like an ad for TWA, but it captured the spirit of the title song and the set as a whole. London by night, Brazil, Blue Hawaii, all fine charts by Billy May. But the album's masterpiece was, of all things, Mandalay. By the
0: old moon name Pagoda Looking eastward To the sea There's a Burma Broad a setting And I know She thinks of me For the wind Is in the palm trees And the temple Bells they say Come you back You British soldier Come you back To Mandalay Come you back to Mandalay Come you back to Mandalay Where the old flotilla lay Can't you hear their paddles chunking From Rangoon to Mandalay Where the flying fishers play And the dawn comes up like thunder Out of China Across the bay
1: Frank and his bum abroad, gongs and other oriental flourishes A little sparring Between swing and march, tempo in the instrumental, sonata, all nice and loosened up. It's a terrific record. Ollie Speaks never heard it. He died in 1948. Nor Rudyard Kipling. He died in 1936. But Kipling's daughter, Elsie Bambridge, heard it and strongly disliked it, and she forbade the inclusion of Mandalay on the Come Fly With Me LP throughout the British Empire. In the United Kingdom, it was replaced with a goofy novelty number, French Foreign Legion, in Australia and elsewhere. They substituted Chicago, and some parts of the Commonwealth wound up with it happened in Monterey. Frank didn't care for Mrs. Bambridge's enforcement of her copyright and made a special point of singing Mandalay whenever he was in front of British subjects. Here he is live in Melbourne... This is a pre-lockdown Melbourne for any Victorians listening right now and you may have forgotten that once upon a time in Melbourne, live stage performance was legal and the citizenry uh, were permitted to leave their homes to enjoy it. So here's Sinatra in a pre-lockdown Melbourne in 1959.
0: This particular song was uh, uh, written from the poem by Rudyard Kipling. Now, it seems that we have done a rather different version of Road to Mandalay so that his family has objected, and in anywhere in the British Empire, it's not to be played on the record. So they took it off their long-playing record of Come Fly With Me, and they replaced it with Chicago. That's how you happen to hear Chicago. <laughs> but this is an unusual version of Road to Mandalay. It's, it's comedic, but it swings, it jumps. And... Uh, I think that Rudyard Kipling's sister was chicken, not the lettuce put it up there.
1: <laughs> Elsie Bambridge didn't like Burma Broads a setting and a cat raisin' a thirst. Singing it live, Frank could get even looser. And those goddamn bells keep ringing, because
0: it's there that I long to be, by the Egg Foo Young Pagoda, looking eastward. Uh, the
1: Peter Dawson for- was still around in 1959. In fact, he'd made his last studio recordings in London only four years earlier. I wonder if he caught Sinatra on that Aussie tour, and if so, what he made of the Egg Fu yong pagoda. Maybe they had one in Adelaide. Elsie Bambridge died in 1976, and shortly thereafter on the road to Mandalay was restored to its rightful place on British pressings of Come Fly With Me, including with its famous ending. Frank didn't like the conclusion of Billy May's arrangement when they ran it down in the studio. So he looked at the gong. Tell you what, he said to Frank Flynn, when we get to that line, you hit that mother with everything you got. And they started another take.
0: Ship me somewhere east of Suez Where the best is like the worst Where there ain't no Ten Commandments And a cat can raise a thirst Cause those crazy bells are calling And it's there that I would be By the old moon Pagoda, Looking lazy at the sea Looking lazy at the sea Come you back to Mandalay Where the old flotilla lay Can't you hear their paddles chunking From Rangoon to Mandalay I am and the dawn comes up like thunder.
1: And as Frank Flynn whacked that gong, Billy May signaled to the band not to play a note. And the musicians looked to Sinatra to pick up the ending. Uh, And then, as his lead alto Skeets Herford recalled, instead of going on, Frank put on his hat and threw his coat over his shoulder like he does and walked out of the studio. We all laughed like mad. We said, what's happening? Is Frank going to come back and do it again? No, he wasn't. The gong was still reverberating and the singer was in the corridor and that's how they released the track with Sinatra's improvised ending. Time marches on like British troops on the road to Mandalay. Burma's post-independence history has been mostly bloody, brutal and ugly, and much of its own past is unknown to contemporary citizens of Myanmar, a word that rarely passes my lips. But tourists do come and they take the road to Mandalay, and the young Burmese tour guides who show them around if they know Kipling's song at all, know it not through Peter Dawson's or any other imperially evocative recordings, but only as a Sinatra swinger. And so these days you'll be on the road to Mandalay and ask the tour guide if he digs the song, and the response will be to Elsie Bambridge's taste disturbingly Sinatra-esque.
0: Come you back to Mandalay Where the old floaty lollies Give murder, to Mandalay.
1: The road to Mandalay as sung on the road to Mandalay, thus Frankie, the last Tommy, as the sun drops low on the rice fields and the Hathies play teak to the paddle steamers. Maybe there's a Burma broader settin' after all. Elsie Bambridge thought Frankisms like broad would kill her father's work. She had no idea that that would be left to the real homicidal vandals like Willard White and that her family... I'm uh, looking at you, Mike Kipling would be reduced to pleading with Sir Willard to substitute any words he wants. But please, 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 please don't not sing it. There's a Burma broader a and she thinks that's pathetic. That will do it for today's show. Have a great weekend, whether by the Old Mool Mine Pagoda or the Egg Foo Yong Pagoda. We will have a Song of the Week special for you on Sunday. Hope you'll tune in for that. And Kathy Shadel's movie date is on this Saturday. Don't miss it. Stay safe, stay free.
0: Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.